from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll look at the plan to put millions of public dollars into the Brewer Stadium. The public deserves a public benefit for its investment, just as any private individual who would invest in the Brewers would expect a return on their investment. We'll speak with the owners of a Milwaukee dance studio that isn't just about teaching people new moves. You're meeting all kinds of different kinds of people and uh, from all walks of life. There's not too many places where you could interact with so many people who are so diverse in such an intimate and uh, you know, tangible, physical way. Plus, we'll get some advice on how to preserve what came out of the garden this year in our gardening series, Dig In. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. State Assembly Speaker Robin Voss has proposed a financing plan to help the Milwaukee Brewers pay for major maintenance projects at American Family Field. It includes $100 million from the Brewers and upward of $600 million from state and local tax dollars. Michael Rosen, a retired economics professor, says there's a different way. Rosen is a part of a local coalition that wants there to be some kind of public ownership of the team, or at least a greater payback to taxpayers. Rosen joins WUWM's Chuck Kornbach to look at the proposed plan and what he thinks could be changed. One thing to think about is that when Governor Evers proposed $290 million to be invested in the stadium over a very short period of time, that was the largest subsidy to a professional sports team in uh, U.S. history. And the Voss plan has increased that to $30 million per year. And of course, uh, $200 million of the total $600 million that uh, the Voss plan is proposing is coming from Milwaukee County, despite the fact that only 38% of the fans who attend Brewer games are from Milwaukee County. We had a tax system that was broader, maybe not broad enough in support of the stadium in the past, but this is clearly a stick it to Milwaukee. Uh, I think that uh, some of the Republicans who crafted this bill are well aware that the last time uh, there was a, a tax imposed to support the Brewers, one of their colleagues lost his job uh, due to the reaction to it. And so I think that they think that they can stick it to Milwaukee. And probably they also are well aware that we passed the sales tax in this city, a regressive tax, I should add. And so for some odd reason, they think that the Brewers should be first in line. And the numbers are even smaller for the city of Milwaukee. 22% of the fan attendance is from the city of Milwaukee. They, They acknowledge. Right. And so they want $2 million a year from the city and $5 million a year from the county. It's, it's really quite outrageous. Well, what about the state component here? The, Robin Voss, the assembly speaker, and Robert Brooks, uh, an architect of this plan, a Republican legislator from Sockville, say, well, a lot of money would come from taxing the salaries of the brewers and also the visiting players. They put in uh, some money when they play in Milwaukee, or eventually they do. Uh, what about that aspect of it? But, but that's still, you know, hocus-pocus economics because that money is being paid now and would be being paid then goes to the state. And so when they're saying it doesn't cost anything because this we're taxing the players, they're 
ignoring the opportunity cost, which is that money currently goes to the state and can be used for shared revenue. It could be used for child care, which our child care system statewide is in a crisis. It could be used for lead, uh, replacing lead laterals, fixing potholes in streets, investing in public education, or any other number of important things. We, have, we should reflect on the fact that the brewers are attempting to be first in line in a city where we've closed firehouses, where we have shut libraries, where we have potholes that were on a, like a, a lifetime, 70-year cycle to be fixed, and all of a sudden, uh, there's a rush. Remember, the, the contract with the brewers and the stadium doesn't expire for seven years. I think everybody needs to take a step back, take a deep breath, and the first thing that needs to be done is that the brewers and the stadium district need to be transparent. That is, they need to open their books. If you're making an, a major investment, which is what they're asking, anybody does the due diligence, looks at the books and asks, let me see the income, let me see the output, let me see the expenditures, uh, let me see what you have in reserve. Well, you, Michael Rosen, are part of a coalition that has a little different idea as far as stadium financing, that in return for it, there should be some public ownership of the brewers. Can you talk a little bit about how that would work? I have to say we're raising the issue that if there is public money invested in the brewers organization and the stadium, there should be a public return above and beyond keeping the brewers here, which I think everybody is interested in doing. But when we invest in Apple or we invest in General Motors, uh, we're just not happy that they keep existing. We expect a return on the investment that we make. And the principle is the same with the stadium and the brewers. What form that could take needs to be hammered out because my understanding is that Major League Baseball has gotten some leg federal legislation that would make that difficult at the present time. But that's something that people like... Congresswoman Moore and Senator Baldwin should be looking at because Major League Baseball already is exempt from antitrust legislation. But in this case, we're being asked to invest money in the brewers, and it's entirely legitimate for us to say we should get some return. Here's an example. We know that the owner of the brewers paid $232 million for the brewers when he bought him. They are now valued at $1.6 billion, and that's probably a low evaluation. If they get a new stadium deal, that will increase the value of the team exponentially, over $2 billion, possibly even $3 billion. And it's very likely that he will sell the team at some point. So we, by investing in the stadium, are increasing the value of his asset. Perhaps the way to structure this is that we should get a percentage of the sale that Antastasio would get when he sells the team. That would be one way to think about it. There are other public benefits as well, if I can go on for a minute. One is that the people who work at the stadium should be paid $20 an hour as a floor. For years, we've had $15 in a union. We've all seen inflation and costs go up. There should be a minimum floor, salary floor of $20 and a union. And every employee, not just the players who have a very robust union, right? <laughs> but every employee of the brewer in the stadium district 
should uh, have the right to unionize and a fair process for unionizing. You're sort of referring as well to the Milwaukee Bucks and the Pfizer Forum deal. Is that right? This is exactly what was done by the Bucks at the Pfizer Forum. Not only uh, were the construction jobs unionized, but all of the jobs in the Pfizer arena, all of the jobs in the restaurants associated in the district, et cetera, are union jobs. What they set up was a process called card check so that if 50% plus one of the employees in the district's uh, restaurant or in the Pfizer forum signed on to the union, then they got a union and, and the Bucks agreed not to engage in aggressive anti-union behavior. The same thing should take place at the Brewers ballpark. So what would happen under your proposal, or at least be thinking of the Republican idea to the development possibility of the area around American Family Field? When the Bucks did their deal, part of the reason public money was invested, in addition to their agreement to a fair process for unionization and $15 an hour as a floor, was that they were going to develop the area around the Pfizer Forum, which would generate not only jobs and income tax revenue, but property taxes. Right now, the land around the Brewer Stadium, American Family Field, is property tax free. So even if there was development, it wouldn't flow to the city, the county, or the state. And there's no intention, as far as anybody knows, as far as it's been stated, uh, to develop it. But why wouldn't we want to see that vacant property turned into jobs and tax revenue generating activity? Mayor uh, Johnson has raised that issue, and he's right about that issue. Uh, if they want to get public money, then again, this is one of the public benefits that makes a lot of sense. So why should Mark Atanasio, the brewer's principal owner, and the other people that have bought into the brewers expecting some sort of return on their investment, uh, what would be in it for them to agree to a public ownership or more public say-so? Well, uh, what's in it for them is if they want public money, they should be responsible citizens and recognize that the public deserves a public benefit for its investment, just as any private individual who would invest in the brewers would expect a return on their investment. And look, they are asking for a huge amount of money in a community that is extremely poor, that was on the verge, we were told, and no one disputes it, of a fiscal an existential fiscal crisis. And now they're asking to be first in line. Well, if they want the investment, instead of us putting it into our public schools or in fixing our potholes or making sure that our kids aren't drinking lead, lead in the water, then we deserve some return on our investment. That's what's in it for them. If they want the money, they need to play ball with the community. It sounds like you and other members of the coalition that you described are going to be uh, continuing to watch this proposal as it goes through the legislative process, maybe a public hearing and so on. You're, you're in it for all nine innings. Yes, we're in it for not only the nine innings, but if it goes into extra innings. <laughs> 
Michael Rosen is a retired MATC economics professor. He spoke with WUWM's Chuck Kornbach, and you can learn more about the funding proposal for the Brewers Stadium at WUWM.com. Why does poverty persist in the United States, the richest country in the entire world? Sociologist Matthew Desmond argues in his book it's because everyone else benefits from it. Not just the wealthiest Americans, but those who are housed, college-educated, and secure. His book, Poverty by America, explores why so many in the U.S. live in poverty and how to end it. Desmond attended graduate school at UW-Madison and won the Pulitzer Prize for his 2016 book, Evicted, which looks at housing and poverty in Milwaukee. He talks about his latest book with WUWM's Lena Tran. I have been researching and reporting on poverty all of my adult life, basically. You know, I've, uh, I've lived in really poor communities. I've spoken to organizers and union reps and spent time with folks that are part of the working homeless and studied statistics and taught classes and, you know, but I just, I didn't feel like I really had a solid answer to a core question. Like if someone came up to me on the street and said, Matt, why is there so much poverty in America and how can we finally end it? What would it be my answer? And this book is my answer. And you land on a pretty clear and damning answer, which is that the reason poverty is so persistent in our country is because those who are better off benefit from it. How do people who aren't living in poverty benefit? We permit unrelenting exploitation of the poor in the labor market, in the housing market, in the financial market. So we allow workers to be really shortchanged, and we allow millions of folks to work for, for poverty wages. And who benefits from that? Corporations do, sure, but so do many of us that consume the cheap goods and services that the working poor produce. So do many of us who are invested in the stock market. You know, do we benefit a bit when we see our savings go up, even if that requires a kind of a human sacrifice? We protect tax breaks that really are designed to subsidize affluence and not alleviate poverty. We protect things like the mortgage interest deduction or tax breaks for wealth transfers or retirement plans. And a lot of those tax breaks really accrue to the richest families in America, and that starves anti-poverty spending. And then many of us continue to embrace segregation. You know, we, we build walls around our communities through zoning laws, and we hoard opportunity behind those, those walls. We have to begin tearing down the walls, and I think we have to start taking steps as a country to finally abolish poverty. Early on in the book, you tell this story of your friend Wu, who you met while you were living in Milwaukee, and he has this awful experience that is actually pretty common for people living in poverty. Could you share that story? Sure. Wu and I lived together um, in a rooming house on the north side of Milwaukee, and he stepped on a nail there once, and he ignored the the infection that started spreading. I just couldn't afford to pay it any mind. He worked all the time as a security guard. And um, pretty soon the infection accelerated and it was accelerated by his diabetes and he, he had his leg amputated. And um, 
Dramatic, of course. You know, Wu is just a gregarious man. He's also a very big man. And I found him in the, the hospital. And just He looks small, and we cried together. And then we applied for disability together for him. And he got rejected. And then he hired a lawyer. And uh, the lawyer won the case. Wu got, I think, $3,400 in back pay. And the, the lawyer took home 400 bucks. Now, that, that never really bothered Wu. You know, he thought, you know, that's how... He was able to get on disability, but, you know, I can't get over the fact that over a billion dollars every year in social security funds doesn't go to people like Wu. It goes to lawyers to help people like Wu get on disability. And this is a big theme in America where a lot of money that's earmarked for low-income folks never reaches them. Right. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. You know, it is this one story, but it's one of the many ways that by and large money set aside for anti-poverty programs doesn't really reach the people who need it. Right. So that's another thing that really blew me away researching the book. We hear so much about welfare dependency. Uh, We heard so much about it in COVID. But if you look at the data, you quickly realize the problem isn't welfare dependency, it's welfare avoidance. There's so many families in America that are leaving a lot of aid on the table. And if you add up like the amount of aid that goes unused by one in five workers who could receive the earned income tax credit, which is like a wage subsidy for working parents, one in five workers don't claim it. One in five elderly Americans who could receive food stamps don't claim them. And you add that up with the folks that pass on unemployment insurance and government health insurance and you know things like that, you realize that every year, you know, over $140 billion, billion with a B, is left on the table. This is, this is frankly, the opposite of welfare dependence. We might be like, what's going on? Is it stigma? Are people not uh, reaching for programs that, that they need and deserve because they're embarrassed? And the answer seems to be not really, actually. There's some mixed evidence for that. There's more evidence for the fact that we've made these programs hard to apply for, onerous, we made it confusing, difficult. And so very simple steps like making the font bigger, uh, helping elderly folks apply for food stamps, uh, directly saying, hey, you, you know, you can apply for this. Did you know this? Sign up now. Uh, really, really can work. And, you know, we live in a country where with a click of a button, we can have just about anything delivered to our door the next day, right? We know how to advertise. We know how to deliver things. Apply those skills and that know-how to helping families get connected to programs they need and deserve. Mm -hmm. So you've just talked about ways that we could make it easier for people to access this money that is already earmarked for, you know, anti-poverty measures. Could you take some time to talk about your other solutions? I think we need to do three things to end poverty in America. And I want to focus on the ending part. I do not want to reduce poverty. I want to abolish it. And a country as rich as ours certainly can afford to do so. The first thing we need to do is deepen our investments in anti-poverty spending. And it's not really hard to know where the money would come from. You know, recently published studies showed that if the top 1% of us just paid the taxes they owed, we could raise an additional $175 billion every year. That's almost enough lift everyone out of poverty. We know how to do this. But we don't just need deeper investments. We need different ones. You know, we need to attack the unrelenting exploitation 
of poor folks. You know, consider the labor market. There was a time where if you, you got a job, you could advance in the company, you got some benefits, your wages went up every year. We are so far away from that today. And a reason is because workers have lost power. And so we need to find ways of empowering the poor, expanding their choice, especially with respect to, to, where, to where to live and how to bank. And then the third thing we need to do is finally end our embrace of segregation. We need to tear down the walls that we've created around our communities and really strive for inclusive communities based on broad prosperity. With those three steps, I think we could finally abolish poverty in this rich nation. Throughout this book, you use the language of we and us, like, you know, the reader is going to be someone with a 401k, you know, but also you're with us. Can you talk about the discomfort of seeing yourself implicated in that system and maybe how to channel that into something productive, like becoming a quote unquote poverty abolitionist? Yeah, you know, this is going to take all of us. And I really thought about that. Like, I'm so glad you brought this up. I really struggled with that language, the language of the book, because you're right. When you use this word, you're like, who is the we, right? Who's the book targeted toward? And at, at the very beginning of the book, I, I say the we is, you know, the lucky, you know, the college educated, the housed, the protected. And, you know, I grew up poor. You know, um, my family went through foreclosure process before everyone else was doing it, you know, um, and I have, you know, a social mobility story like many Americans. And I think it's important for those of us that have found some security to ask ourselves how we are connected to the problem and thus connected to the solution. So I do think that means doing things like examining our consumer choices, um, looking at our investment portfolios, demanding more of our government. You know, I think that um, as a homeowner, for, I own a home now, you know, so I'm eligible for the mortgage interest deduction, for example. I don't want this deduction. I don't need it. Uh, many uh, folks that uh, are taking this giant benefit from the government, a benefit that far, far outpaces direct housing assistance to the needy, we, we don't need that. And so I think the more of us that can speak out against this imbalanced um, tax system or, or welfare state that, that benefits many of us, the more that we can kind of rethink our consumer choices and our investment decisions, not only because those individual decisions are important, but also because it can really change the common sense and push the political will. And also, I think we have to invest in broad prosperity. And so that's, that sounds abstract, right? Like, what does that mean? But often it means going down to your zoning board meeting at, on a Tuesday night and standing up and saying, look, I refuse to be a segregation. You know, I refuse to deny other kids opportunity. My kids have, have had living in this neighborhood, build this thing. So I, I think that this isn't an argument that is designed to um, spur guilt. It's an, it's an argument designed to spur action and inspire us to reach for, for something better. Even recently in Milwaukee, there's like a few affordable housing developments in um, suburbs like Brookfield and uh, Wauwatosa that are creating opportunities, like you say, for people to show up and be like, no, this is something I want. There was an older person in Brookfield in the news a couple of weeks ago saying that we don't need affordable housing in Brookfield. You just shouldn't want to live in Brookfield if you can't afford it. Right. And so think about that, right? You wouldn't expect a politician to show up at a 
a soccer game and say, you can join the game, you guys can't. You wouldn't expect a politician to have that kind of, of power over you know, a voting booth, right? Yeah, like if they're saying, okay, you guys can vote here, not you guys. But with housing, this seems normal to us, you know, mm-hmm. that we can like divvy out opportunity in this in this blatant way. And so let's just, I mean, let's go in here. What are we, what are we, what are we nervous about? So many people ostensibly are nervous about the property values, you know, the property values going down. But the research on this is very clear. You know, affordable housing that's built in a smart way that blends into the community, that's spread out through the community has no effect on, on property values. And I think that, um, but that I think takes the argument only so far. And we just have to confront the fact that many of these arguments are just fueled by by racism. And if you read the arguments that segregationists were making in the, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, and 70s, man, they sound a lot like the arguments we're making today. And the folks that are defending the wall, they, they, do, the, they do the work, right? They show up at those meetings. They yell at the aldermen. They, they write petitions. And I think it's going to take a lot of us that are striving for a more open Milwaukee, a more open community to start showing up to and, and voicing dissent. What makes you hopeful that we can make progress on what you're offering us, you know, that we won't stay siloed behind the walls that we have risen? I'm hopeful because we have so many resources in this country and we just have to push back against any suggestion otherwise. I think anytime we hear this idea like, man, how are we going to afford that? We just have to reject that dishonest, even sinful question. You know, we certainly have the resources to make major differences. Like look at what happened in COVID, right? Like we reduced child poverty almost in half in just six months, six months, you know? And so we have the resources, we have the know-how, that gives me hope. I'm also hopeful because we've been here before. You know, in the 60s, Congress was polarized, it was divided. People were blocking legislation left and right. It looks a lot like it does today. But movements, especially the civil rights movement and the labor movement, put unrelenting pressure on lawmakers. And they passed major pieces of civil rights legislation. They passed the War on Poverty and they passed the Great Society. These were programs that cut poverty in half in 10 years. And I think that then as, you know, now as, as then, you know, our hope lies with building an anti-poverty movement. And today a movement is stirring and a movement is necessary. Matthew Desmond is a sociology professor at Princeton University and the author of Poverty by America. He spoke with WUWM's Lena Tran earlier this year. Did you know you can listen to Like Effect as a podcast? Just search for Like Effect wherever you get your podcast to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Like Effect interviews. The gardening season may be coming to a close, but there's still lots more to do in the yard. We'll help you prepare the garden for winter later in the show. But first, we'll visit a dance studio in Milwaukee that's giving people a place to learn Latin dance and blend with different cultures. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.
You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Salsa music is a blend of instruments and musical styles from many cultures. So it's no surprise that it attracts a diverse group of dance students each week at the Delaware House. The Delaware House in Milwaukee's Bayview neighborhood isn't just a dance studio, but it's where instructors Betty Guerrero and Matt Woida host their classes. WUWM's Eddie Morales asked them how Latin dance has fostered a welcoming community for students at the Delaware House. But first, you'll hear from two students who share their introductions to salsa dancing. Could you say your full name for me? Cindy Martinez. And you as well? Genaro Castro. What brings you out here to the Delaware House today? Loving to dance, learning to dance. And how long have the two of you been taking lessons or just been dancing in general? Me, four years. Me, eight. Eight years. And how familiar are you with Latin music and dancing and and everything already? Or was this more of an introduction to it for you? For me, it was an introduction. I'm, I'm Mexican, but I never knew how to dance. But I always wanted to dance salsa. So as I got older, I just took advantage of that and I love it. It's just in you, you know, you feel so good. Uh, like you know, when you're in a zone, that's how you feel, and it just feels great, wonderful. Same for you. I started dancing with um, a Cuban in Mexico, and doing all kinds of Afro moves with it. And then I came back here and wanted to improve, so I could make him proud of me when I returned. And I came up here and found this incredibly beautiful dance community with all these different schools and wonderful, helpful people, and really nice people that are interacting and helpful and fun. Like it's just fun. For, for anybody who wants to join, it's a very nice community. No, it doesn't seem like anybody's trying to, you know, outdo each other, yeah, outdo each other or, or just try to pick somebody. It's just a, a wonderful community. Everybody's friends and you feel comfortable and it's warm and, you know, you're, you love what you're doing is dancing. It's wonderful. I'm Betsy Guerrero and I am a co-owner of Mesclando Milwaukee Dance Company. And how did you become a dance instructor um, and an owner? What exactly do you teach? Dancing for me is definitely a, um, a family thing, a heritage thing. I, my dad is from Colombia, and he danced as a, as a young person in Colombia. They would go like house to house on the weekends and, and just dance as a community. So when I was growing up, we often invited people over to our houses. We had house parties that were... Um, like poetry and music and dinners together. And then, you know, sometimes we would have dances. Uh, Just dancing in our home was something that I just did growing up. And so I I knew from a young age that I was going to be a dancer. Um, Dancing is a a community thing. It's for everyone. It's for all ages. And uh, when I met Matt, it was definitely like uh, became a career possibility that we could really share this thing together and with our community in Milwaukee. And so that had a a significance to your upbringing, to your childhood. What is the cultural significance, not only to you personally, but when you share those lessons with the community, what does that mean to them? So in in Latin dance, what you have is this um, like cat and mouse or rooster and hen kind of play uh, in the dance, right? There's uh, a lot of chemistry, a lot of passion, it's very freeing and expressive. The, the music, of course, has its own culture and history. You know, if you're listening to the lyrics, there might be like some 
um, hidden messages in there that the, the artist is speaking to. It might be uh, a time in that country that people are undergoing some kind of strife or rebellion, and the singer may be addressing that. In Milwaukee, what we're doing is we're just bringing people together. So there's different Latino groups, of course, coming out and dancing, and they are understanding the music. But what's really special is that um, the music, because of its um, very rich history in having African and European and Central American and South American instruments all coming together with a, an orchestra of, you know, like 10 people playing all these different instruments, every person can find a connection to that music. So it might be the, you know, the African drum that you hear and that calls to you. And it might be, you know, the European like woodwinds or flute instruments that you um, hear and those, you know, speak to a different aesthetic. And just the fact that the music is this polyrhythmic, you know, everybody's, the musicians are mixing and the people are mixing. It just creates an environment that is for everyone. And I think when you come in, especially to one of our First Friday Salsa Socials, you come in, you see somebody else who's like you here. And I think that's really powerful. The dance that we do, we teach primarily salsa dancing. We also do bachata and cumbia and merengue, cha-cha, um, all the, the popular Latin dances. The main thing that draws people to us is the connection. We believe that the connection between the partners is super important, and we also um, believe that our connection with the community and one another in the dance class. Our classes are very friendly and open, welcoming to anyone who is interested in the music or the culture, um, looking for a healthy hobby to do. For me, dance, the connection, the partnership uh, is the most important thing. It's very different than, than the dancing that my dad did growing up. My dad was, you know, a little bit more formal and it's just the dancing that we're doing is, is a new, modern, living dance that's ever-changing, bringing people together, connecting with a person on a, on a new level. That's something that my dad taught me was definitely the connection, the lead and follow was super important. But what we're sharing with our people is a little bit more fast-paced. It's a little bit more exciting and flashy. It's definitely a higher skill level because we're taking it into a studio and we're able to break down the movements a lot more than, than you would if you just had a house party or growing up. What are some common questions from students or have you heard any feedback from them about what these lessons have like helped them learn in life or like taught them, whether it's just something fun or something a little bit more serious, like connecting to their roots or experiencing something that they otherwise wouldn't have? Can you speak to any of that at all? Sure. I've definitely worked with people who are overcoming some kind of personal dilemma or strife in their life and coming to a welcoming place where you can put your, your troubles at the door you come in, the music is uplifting, the people are smiling, you're doing just enough exercise that you have those endorphins going and you leave with a positive feeling. But working one-on-one -on -one with people, I've definitely come across a lot of personal issues that people are overcoming and they're using dance as a tool or as a type of therapy really to get past whatever is happening right now in their life, whether that be divorce or illness or taking care of parents that are, that are aging. You know, everything is just about this moment and this song and this connection that we're having. 
From your perspective, when you're teaching a class and you've seen new faces, familiar faces, um, what are some common sentiments that you get from the students? Well, I'd say the thing that most people tell me they get out of the dance classes is that while they're taking them, they can't really dwell on anything else. Whatever troubles they may have in their life uh, or whatever issues they might have, uh, they don't have any room in their mind for them while they're doing these uh, classes because they have to be so focused on uh, what we're saying or on their partner, what they're doing with their body. Uh, also, you know, you're meeting all kinds of different kinds of people and uh, from all walks of life. And uh, it's, there's not too many places where you could interact with uh, so many people uh, who are so diverse in such an intimate and uh, you know tangible physical way you know so it's a very unique kind of experience and people come to value that and I'm sure this could be said for a lot of different cultures and, and dances but what is it specifically about Latin dances that kind of evokes some of that community feel when two people are you know doing this dance together sure. I think by its nature, uh, Latin music uh, and, and as an extension, Latin dance is a fusion of uh, many cultures. Uh, it has its uh, history uh, in um, the Caribbean and, and um, throughout Latin America, the, the history of, uh, of slavery and uh, the coming together of cultures from Europe and the indigenous cultures and uh, Africa, all of them coming together. It's by its nature a very uh, mixed thing and and that's why we actually call our company Mesclando Milwaukee it's mixing Milwaukee it's a mixture uh, not only of uh, cultures but of people and uh, and, and it, it makes total sense that um, this music kind of produces that result can you explain what the classes are that you offer and what's the typical schedule uh, here at the Delaware House so here at the Delaware House, we uh, teach two nights a week, uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays, and we operate on a uh, drop-in basis for the most part. So uh, no one has to pre-register or um, you know wait for the next uh, you know session to start. You can just show up and and start taking the class. We have uh, our beginner classes on Tuesdays and our more uh, challenging classes on Thursdays. Uh, every first Friday for the last uh, 14 years, uh, people have been coming together here at the Delaware House and having an awesome time dancing to uh, awesome music. We've got some great DJs and um, sharing food and fellowship, uh, just all walks of life. It's just an amazing uh, atmosphere. And honestly, um, it has everything to do with the, the people who come and you know, less to do with me and Betsy, but the, the people who come and uh, they are what make it such a special event. Matt Woida and Betsy Guerrero are instructors at the Delaware House, a dance studio in Milwaukee's Bayview neighborhood. They spoke with WUWM's Eddie Morales. You can find more coverage on the rich cultural diversity of Milwaukee's Hispanic and Latinx people at WUWM.com, and you'll hear more stories throughout Hispanic Heritage Month. Gardening season is winding down, but there's ways to preserve all of your hard work. We'll share some tips in our gardening series, Dig In, next on Lake Effect, here on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.
This is Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. It may seem like the end of the growing season, but there is still much to be done in the garden. Just ask Venus Williams, executive director of Alice's Garden and our regular dig-in contributor. This month, she joins Like Effect's Joy Powers to talk about the many ways to preserve herbs and prepare for the winter ahead. There is still a lot that has to be done in the garden. Much of the growing season is, of course, over, but I think like a lot of people, I have a lot of herbs still left in the ground. What should we be doing right now in our herb garden? For the herbs, we should be both preparing our gardens for the 2024 season, but simultaneously we should be harvesting the abundance, drying for teas and as seasonings, but we also should be making all kinds of creative products with our herbs. I will start with the mint family. Those of us who cultivate mint know that you get to the point where mint is everywhere. And thank goodness that mint is everywhere because there's so much you can do with it. Peppermint, spearmint should without a doubt be dried. You know, you cut cut it back, bundle it, hang it, or put it in the paper bag for herbal teas. You could also, if you have a dehydration feature on your stove, um, in your oven like I do, that is another wonderful way to preserve herbs, to dry them. Once they're totally dried, to crumble them and put them in a jar and to have them for teas. There is nothing as satisfying as drinking a cup of tea in February that came from your garden in September and October. But there's so much more you can do with herbs at this time. Another favorite of mine is lemon balm. And all of us who grow lemon balm, which is also in the mint family, know that lemon balm is one of those herbs that generously shares itself throughout your garden because it spreads by its seed. A lot of people get annoyed with lemon balm, but this is its prime time of year. So cutting lemon balm back, drinking it fresh right now, also harvesting lemon balm. I use a lot of lemon balm when it comes to roasting chicken or putting chicken in my crock pot. So thinking about lemon balm and some of the other herbs as savory herbs, even for your poultry and vegetable dishes. As you say, there are so many ways that we can preserve herbs, especially uh, for for the people who have quite a lot more herbs than they can use uh, right now immediately as fresh herbs. What are some of your favorite ways of preserving uh, the different things from your garden? I love to make herb butters this time of year. And I actually start making them throughout the entire season. And making herbal butters is the one of the simplest things that you can do. You're taking whatever that butter is, whether it's a vegan butter, whether it is a, you know, whatever kind of butter you use, you chop up the herbs. Some people put it through a food processor. I do not. I just chop up my herbs. I mix them together in the butter. I put the butter in ice cube trays put them in the freezer, pop them out, put them in a a freezer bag and just continue that process. So now I can pop out one and use it on a baked potato. I could saute vegetables in it. 
Um, you can use these herb butters in so, so many ways. And some of my favorite herbs to put in herb butters are sage. You know, we have an abundance of sage, basil, parsley, lovage. Thyme is a wonderful one as well to make as an herbal butter. And along that same line, you can do the same thing with oils. So to make an herbal olive oil, you will take that cube that now has been frozen and use that as you saute vegetables and do all those things that you would normally use olive oil for. Along that line, vinaigrettes and dressings. I have said this probably three times on this show and once a week at Alice's Garden. There is no reason why if you're growing herbs that you should not be making your own salad dressings and vinaigrettes. It is one of the easiest things to do. I'm taking your favorite bases, again, whether that's olive oil, um, balsamic oils, and infusing them with those herbs. And as I say this, I also want us to think about, you know, we're coming upon the major holiday seasons in our lives. And so you're making them for home, but you can also make these things as host gifts when you go to someone's home and literally to give away as Christmas gifts or whatever the holiday is that you um, celebrate. So that's where herbal salts come in and herbal sugars. Um, again, taking the herbs, I do put the salts and the sugars through a food processor, chopping up those herbs. Then I bake them in my oven um, on the dehydration feature. If you don't have a dehydration feature, you can just put it at a very low temperature, somewhere between 130 and 150. And then all of the flavor seals into those salts. Right now, just in the past couple of weeks alone, I have made the nasturtium, which is a peppery herb. Um, so nasturtium seasoned salt, lovage seasoned salt. I have made sage getting ready to come upon, again, my dressings for the holidays. And you can also blend the herbs together. You don't have to do single herbs. And for the sugars, using them and then baking with them or using both the salts and sugars on rims for your favorite cocktails. Can you tell I'm really excited about this time of year and all the different things we can do with herbs? I can indeed. Uh, so somebody who's had an herb garden for many years at this point, something that I run into uh, that certainly annoys my, my better half is I will just have these jars of herbs and I know what they are because I can tell what the leaves are and I can tell, you know, I've dried them, I put them in a jar and then I, you know, put them away somewhere. He'll go, well, when are these from? What are these? What is this that I'm looking at right now? What are your tips for storing herbs after you've processed them? I will say that it's so important to label them. So you want an airtight jar if you're if you're drying them. Make sure, you know, so the, the same mason jars that we use in other preservations, you know, you want an airtight jar. And even though we know what they are, I still encourage putting the name of the herb on the jar with, a, you know, just a little label and the year. When you're growing your own herbs, it takes a really long time for them to lose flavor and taste and to become old. And that doesn't happen for me because I use them so much. But putting them in the jar and putting that label on them is so important. The other thing that you can do and that I love to do with herbs is make my own herbal 
potpourri. Again, why buy potpourri when you can make them with the herbs? And you can do that in the same way. So let's say that you do have this jar of herbs that you may have preserved two seasons ago and you still have it. Two seasons ago, peppermint or some of the other ones, anise hyssop, some of these things that really their aromas are incredible or lavender. You can add some essential oil to it and or you can go ahead and get some dried fruit and add to it. So doing potpourri um, is another way to preserve these herbs. I also don't want us to forget that another incredible way to use herbs is to make your own cleaning solutions. There is nothing as fulfilling as making a lavender counter spray, making a peppermint kitchen spray or basil or lemon verbena. So go ahead and look up recipes to make your own household products that again become so satisfying throughout the winter months. But label, 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 label. I do the same thing. I say, I'm never going to forget what this is. And that has happened quite often. So as we are getting into this fall season, what is some good reading to keep us warm? The Alchemy of Herbs is one of my um, favorite books. Be Quiet, Joy. I know I say that every every month. <laughs> um, but The Alchemy of Herbs by Rosalie de La Ferrette is really a wonderful compilation of recipes, herbal knowledge, understanding the properties of herbs, and then, you know, what you can, and it's just beautiful. So it's one of those books that you take to bed with you and you may dream of creams and salves or incredible dishes that you'll never make, but that's okay. You'll do some of it. So Alchemy of Herbs by Rosalie de la Ferret. All right. Well, as always, Venus, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect and sharing your expertise. Thank you for having me and happy autumn. Venus Williams is the executive director of Alice's Garden. Every month, she joins Lake Effect's Joy Powers for our Dig In series. And you can find all of their previous conversations at wuwm.com. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, simply download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll learn how Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin is working to better serve the Spanish-speaking community here. Plus, we'll hear from a Milwaukee stand-up comedian who wants to see more women and people of color on stage. That's tomorrow at noon on Lake Effect, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. NPR.